Good morning. Welcome to those who are joining us online today as well. Today we are entering into chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews, where we learn that Jesus came to be the pioneer of our salvation. So what is a pioneer? A pioneer is one who goes first, one who breaks ground to make a way forward where one didn't exist before, often so that other people can follow. This is kind of a Star Trek spirit, right? To boldly go where no one has gone before. Pioneering takes a lot of risk, because, and it usually has a pretty high personal cost. It takes courage to be the first. And that's why we admire pioneers, the deep sea divers, the astronauts, the explorers, people who push the boundaries and show us what's possible. Pioneers are trailblazers. They break through barriers. And there are all different kinds of pioneers. Has anyone here seen the movie Hidden Figures? Anybody? It's about the African-American genius women who were like living computers who helped provide the calculations that were necessary for the moon landing. And seeing that history on the big screen absolutely blew me away. First of all, because I know nothing about math. Uh, but secondly, because I knew it took overcoming so many odds at such great personal cost for each one of those women to be part of that. So why would they do it? Because they could. And because they knew that they could. And because they knew for their daughters and their granddaughters to live in a world that believed they also could, they would have to go first. What an inspiration. Those are pioneers. And we especially remember them today on Juneteenth. When I think back about my own family history, I'm also in awe about what, how hard life was for my ancestors. My dad's father's family came to North America shortly after the Mayflower, so they were pioneers way back. But my dad's mother was born in Holland and came over on the boat when she was two, her family not knowing a word of English. And as a teen, my grandmother worked as a servant in wealthier households in Aiken, Minnesota, while her father and brothers farmed to make a life for their family. My mother's grandparents were born from Norwegian immigrants who had themselves as kids survived the winter living in a sod dugout in the farm fields of the Red River Valley. I can't even imagine how cold. My mom's mother was the first person in her family to go to high school and became a teacher at a one-room schoolhouse. My mother was the first person in her family to earn a college degree. It's humbling to look back and think about all of those risks taken, those hardships overcome by others I would have given me the opportunities I have today. What is it in human beings like us that draws us to risk a new step and to venture into something more, to envision possibilities of a life for ourselves beyond what we can now see? The Lord has placed something deep in the human heart that longs to grow into what's possible but yet unseen. That's faith. It's hope. And it grows when it's anchored in love. It's a hope that comes from trusting there is one who came to give us life, and life abundantly. The medieval theologian Irenaeus once said, The glory of God is a human being fully alive. The seeds of possibility planted in us are meant to be nurtured and grown. Our God is a creator, and he's always working to continue to create through us. And today on Father's Day, I'm reminded how often this kind of ministry is the day-to-day -day work of fathers to help their kids navigate a way forward in a world that will throw many obstacles in their path. Through their own stories, their support, 
by the foundation of their love, they give their kids the freedom to navigate the bumps while teaching them both how to risk and how to recover when things don't turn out the way they hope. Resilience comes when we learn what it is to navigate real struggles in life, knowing that we're not alone, showing us what it is to shake the dust off our feet and dare to move forward with hard-earned wisdom into the next challenge that awaits us. Pioneering stories need to be told because they inspire us in faith and in hope, especially when we encounter those stories knowing that we're loved when they're framed and upheld by the story of the eternal love of our Heavenly Father, who holds all of us through the ups and downs of life. But stories like this are only inspiring to us, really, when they show us that there can be a way forward into hope for us, starting from where we actually are right now, right? And that said, now we're ready for Hebrews 2, because that's where God starts the story of the work of the pioneer of our salvation. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Let's pause there for a minute. If we can relate to anything, if anything is common in the human experience, it's suffering, right? So if our hope can be found out of a place of suffering, that's a hope that can find us, right? So that's where Jesus had to go. Verse 11 continues, Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And then in verse 17, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So God sent the pioneer to start from human square one to become the way of our salvation from where we are. The writer of Hebrews starts off chapter 2 by quoting Psalm 8, although he doesn't remember where it is in the Bible. He just says, somewhere in the Bible it says, which it's nice to know I'm not alone in that sometimes. Um, He says, celebrating God's work, he's celebrating God's work in the order of creation, we're human beings. He says, the psalmist says, you made them, humans, a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. That's what God has done for human beings. He then comments, in putting everything under them, under humans, God left nothing that isn't subject to them. Yet at the present, we don't see everything subject to them. He then points out how amazing it is that Jesus would enter into the story of creation on the human level. And why? Hebrews continues, But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The Son of God made himself lower than the angels, equal to humanity for us, so he could blaze a trail from human death into eternal life. And to do that, he had to be human. There's a reason why none of us could achieve this. So I'm going to get a little bit heady here, a little theological. So for those of you who like theology, hang on with me. For the rest of you, count how many times I use the word light in this explanation. Okay? Ready? The sin in us steals, kills, and destroys life. It creates darkness. 
And before the fall, Adam and Eve used to walk in the presence of God, but when they faced temptation to know both good and evil, they were immediately tempted into choosing evil. And they, thus we, became creatures of both light and darkness. And they could no longer live in the immediate presence of God. God's life is eternal life. He's like pure light. And think about what happens to the shadows in a room when the light gets turned on. One minute there are shadows, the next minute they're gone, obliterated, like they never existed. Scripture tells us the wages of sin is death, but that's not a punishment, it's just a reality. Life comes from God. There's no other source. And within the light of his eternal life, darkness cannot exist. It does not survive in the presence of an eternal God. And that's why we can't just be good enough to live eternally with God. Because the darkness of sin in us, no matter how small it is, in comparison with the amount of light in us, is still us. We can't amputate it. It just permeates every part of us. So what are creatures of light and darkness to do? We need a whole different kind of rescue. And as Romans 8 says, who will rescue me from this body of death? And the answer, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus came to be the way of that rescue. He lived as pure humanity as we were meant to live. And in his unjust death on the cross, Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe, the wages of sin. On the cross, the death of pure light created something like an implosion. Imagine like a black hole that pulled into itself all the sinfulness of humanity to compensate for the death of the one flawlessly pure human life. That had to be done on the human level to accomplish the problem facing human beings. So the pioneer of our salvation entered as a human being into death, the only sinless human being, breaking the barrier that separated creatures of light and darkness from the eternal life of the Lord of light by making in himself the way for us to be made clean by his saving work so we might approach the throne of grace with confidence. Jesus came to join our death with his so that set free with our sin released, now carried by him, we may join with him in God's eternal resurrection life. And that salvation is ours simply by trusting him with our burden, trusting he is the way. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, Jesus said, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus is referencing an Old Testament story. In the wilderness, when the people of God were suffering snake bites, God had Moses make a snake on a pole and lift it up so everyone could see it. And when people simply lifted their eyes to look at what God had provided, they were healed. That's what Jesus is saying his death on the cross is for all people who look to him as Savior. He is the way. Okay, we're coming out of the theological section now. Anyone know how many times I use the word light? Nine is what I think. <laughs> I can go back and check, but tell me your answers if you can. There is only one pioneer of our salvation. He is the way. He has made the way. That role is taken. So why does it matter that we know that? Because our lives are not meant to be about blazing our own personal trail into eternal life for ourselves by our righteousness or our effort. 
Our lives are meant to be about living into the joyful adventure of following with the one who is himself the way and the truth and the life. Yet so often we forget that. And we go back to trying to hack a self-righteous trail out of our own righteousness instead. And that's not only unnecessary, but it's a waste of time. Time that's actually meant to be used in the world in different kinds of blessing. Have any of you ever been to the Boundary Waters in this room? Yep, some of you here. Well, I once had an experience there that brought this point painfully home for me. If you want the challenge of living like a pioneer, you can find it in the Boundary Waters. All you have there is you, nature, and whatever you carry in on your back. And I was on a trip with a group of friends, one who had been to the Boundary Waters many times, and she had her hopes set on this one particular campsite. Wonderful view of waterfalls, close to cliff dwellings, beautiful vistas. And she remembered from years back, the portage we'd have to take to get there would lead us across this walk where boards were laid across a swamp for a while. It's a bit challenging, but worth it. But when we got to that portage, it was completely overgrown and flooded with mud. And she knew from the past that those boards were under there, so she went first, feeling with her feet and walking on the submerged boards that were now under a foot of swamp mud. So we followed her track as best we could, feeling for the slippery boards with our feet, carrying our unbalanced packs, heavy packs on our back, balancing the awkward canoes overhead while the mosquitoes tortured our face and neck and hands, and we had our hands too busy to slap them. Oh, all the wilderness, right? And I am not overstating, it was misery. If you missed one of those hidden boards and slipped out the path, suddenly you're up to your hip in mud, straining with every muscle to keep your pack dry, keeping the canoe overhead, fighting to try to get back on the slippery path. Ugh, awful, exhausting, hot, smelly, gross. Eventually we made it though, exhausted, covered in mud and mosquito bites all silently thinking, this campsite better be worth it. <laughs> and it turns out, later we found out, that this particular portage had been abandoned for several years. <laughs> A new one had been blazed on higher ground. The one that the other group we ran into had taken, the group not covered in mud and mosquito bites. And incidentally, we did get the campsite, and it was glorious. But I really wish we'd have taken the other trail. <laughs> By relying on just what we ourselves thought we knew, by trying to forge our own trail where one no longer actually existed, we missed out on what those who made those trails actually meant for us to experience. And honestly, we probably messed up the habitat of many critters who had reclaimed that as their own, but to both our detriment. But Jesus, the pioneer of our salvation, has already made the way for us. He is the way. And he calls us to surrender our burdens to him and to joyfully walk with him in his life, in the grace that he's already won for us today. And we can do that, or we can refuse his costly gift and spend our lives trying to blaze our own trail, letting our burdens weigh us down and eventually drag us to the grave with them. We're free to make that choice. But why would we? Why would anyone? Why are we so tempted over and over again to insist on hacking through the mud and carrying our own burdens? Why are we so arrogant to think that we can accomplish ourselves what God thought was necessary to send his son into human flesh to do for us? To make that our quest is to miss the whole point 
of having a savior. No, the adventure we are made for is not for each of us by our own blood, sweat, and tears to carry our burdens on our back every sloggy, muddy, miserable step because there is one who is already carried on his back the cross of our salvation. There is one whose blood, sweat, and tears have already made the way for us. He is the way maker. So if that's not our role in the story of the saving relationship with Jesus, then what is? What are we called to do? Well, for that, I'd like to give you another analogy. I grew up in Bemidji, Minnesota, and as part of our, of our curriculum in school, we were learning about the explorers who had been searching for the headwaters of the Mississippi River in our backyards. They wanted that information to help define and refine boundaries and create maps, things like that. And the legend goes, when the first Europeans in the area met the chief of the Ojibwe, the Anishinaabe people, they asked his name, and he thought they were asking, where are we? And in Ojibwe, the word Bemidji means lake with a river running through it, because the Mississippi River runs through Lake Bemidji. So the chief told them where they were, Bemidji, probably intuiting from their sketchy communication that they were looking for the source, and, they were and was surprised then when they started to call him Chief Bemidji, which was not his name. <laughs> and his gracious reaction was, I guess that's how they roll in Europe. Sure, call me Chief Bemidji if you want. And they did for years before they found out that wasn't his name. <laughs> and I tell you this because I don't believe it's any coincidence that the first European who is credited with discovering the headwaters of the Mississippi at Itasca was Henry Schoolcraft, who married an Ojibwe woman who taught him some of the Ojibwe language. Because while it's still a hard journey to discover something you've never personally seen, it's a whole lot easier when you can ask people, hey, where does this river go? And they can say, this one flows through the lake and comes out over there. <laughs> Looking for the source, it's that way. Finding what's hidden to the rest of the world is a whole lot easier when you know someone who knows the source. The truth is, Henry Schoolcraft didn't actually discover the headwaters of the Mississippi. He had the experience of verifying that what he had heard was indeed true, experiencing it himself. And that was, in itself, a life-changing discovery to him, and through him, it became a life-changing discovery for all those who were seeking those answers. Henry Schoolcraft's role was actually more confirmation and communication than it was discovery. But his choice to communicate what he had seen and heard to the world made a difference, didn't it? Because since then, how many of you have walked across those stones at the headwaters of the Mississippi? Yep, me too. Embracing well the adventure God has given us is about knowing what we are not called to do as well as knowing what we are. We are not the pioneers of the way of our own salvation. Jesus is. No, the adventure we are called into is the adventure of riding the current of the river of his grace, letting it bring you to the surprising people and places around every bend of your life. The adventure we are called into is to yourself experience and confirm that what you have heard is true, to communicate the purity and the power of the source and invite other people to experience and live also by the life-giving power of the river of his grace. Because the thing is, you don't need to make it all the way to Itasca to encounter these waters. The river flows from the source to where we are, beloved. And the waters of God's grace heal and cleanse and nourish and forgive. They make us new. And one day we will all see the source with our own eyes. But until then, the river is flowing. So jump in 
and let him show you in every twist and turn how he's calling you to serve as a guide, as confirmation, as a communicator of the way who is the truth and the life now and forever for all who thirst for his grace. So now I want you to take a moment and think about your own life of faith, your own walk with your Savior. And we pray, Holy Spirit, in this time, would you show us when we fall back into the lie of thinking that we have to blaze our own trail into salvation by our own righteousness? Holy Spirit, show us when the anxieties of our world, of our worries around our own achievements just sink us. And then just like when Peter was sinking in the waves and called out, Lord, save me, and you immediately reached out to grab his hand and pull him out. Jesus, in the same way, as we cry out to you, every time we cry out to you, lift us out of the mud and put our feet back on the solid rock of the way of your grace that you have made for us already by your death and resurrection for our sake. And now as you walk with us, Jesus, we pray that you would give us a different vision for our lives, for the purpose you have for us. As the book of Isaiah says, the redeemed of the Lord shall walk here. Help us, Lord, as we walk with you to see those who need your grace and your love and your light. Teach us what it looks like for each of us to serve as those who verify, confirm, and communicate that you and you alone are the source, you are the way, you are the pioneer of our salvation. Jesus, lead on and show us this week how to live into the joyful adventure with you for the sake of the world around us who need your cleansing water. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.